Hello, this is Michael Volkoff, and this is episode 199 of Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Our episode today is a discussion with Jonathan Marks from Baker Tilly, talking about the Under Armour case, fraud, and accounting uh, issues as well. Uh, happy Father's Day to everybody. I uh, hope you're enjoying your uh, family time and or enjoyed it by the time you listen to this. Um, really happy to have... Uh, Jonathan Marks on the show today. Uh, Jonathan and I work together. He's the global head of forensics at uh, Baker Tilly. Um, he's a terrific guy, uh, incredibly uh, thoughtful, and uh, knows knows his business better than anyone. Um, in any event, we had a good discussion uh, about uh, the Under Armour case and accounting fraud. So uh, we'll get to it in just a second. First, we're going to have a word from our sponsor, and that is uh, Steel Compliance. Steel Compliance is the global leader in compliance and ethics management. Steel's compliance and ethics platform is comprehensive, robust, and easy to use to promote a company's culture of compliance. Steel partners with the world's largest, most respected companies to deliver compliance products and services that help organizations embrace a culture of compliance while protecting their brand. Building an ethical culture is a complex undertaking that requires a detailed understanding of the global compliance environment, considerable time, and specialized expertise. Steele's end-to-end ethics and compliance platform is designed to provide compliance officers with the solutions they need to proactively address changing regulatory and reputational risks. Steele's ethics and compliance automated platform offers critical functions designed to Promote a speak-up culture to advance employee engagement, reporting, and incident management. Investigate promptly and fairly potential incidents to ensure compliance with your organization's code of conduct and applicable laws and regulations, including anti-corruption, anti-money laundering, antitrust, sanctions, cybersecurity, and data privacy. Manage your organization's compliance policies and procedures to ensure that policies are updated and disseminated effectively so that employees understand your organization's compliance requirements. Educate and engage your organization to promote understanding in how your compliance program applies to -to day-to-day operations. And evaluate and monitor your organization's business partners, vendors, suppliers, and customers to mitigate risk and ensure adherence to your organization's ethics and compliance requirements. To learn more about Steel's compliance solutions, please contact us at email steelglobal.com or call 415-692-5000. Well, I'm uh, I'm really glad to have my good friend and colleague, uh, uh, Jonathan Marks, is here today. Uh, Jonathan is the, and I have to give him the title beyond Grand Poobah, but uh, Jonathan's a good friend and colleague, and Jonathan uh is the head of global forensics for baker tilly we actually work together on a number of cases and uh, jonathan thanks for joining me today to discuss under armor pleasure to be here mike okay let me uh set this up and i've been wanting to do the do a podcast with you for a while jonathan on revenue recognition issues because you've taught me uh, so much in that area but you know, Under Armour finally uh, settled its long-pending uh, SEC investigation. They paid around $9 million for misleading statements and practices relating to its revenue growth. Um, I thought it was also interesting, Jonathan, and I want to get your thoughts on this, that their CEO, Kevin Plank, and CFO, David Bergman, each received Wells notices from the SEC 
but that appeared to fade in once Under Armour agreed to the settlement. And um, there was a Justice Department inquiry, uh, but I think it lost steam uh, because I think they thought it was a bigger case than it was going to turn out to be. And it's, it looks like to me, at least DOJ uh, declined prosecution. But this is a long running probe with Under Armour. Uh, and there was a DOJ and SEC parallel investigation into its accounting practices. But the case centered on, and we'll get into the details, but centered on revenue projections, revenue recognition and accounting practices. And I, I just wanted to get your sort of high-level thoughts on the case and sort of the focus of this investigation. Yeah, Mike, um, I think my high-level thoughts are pretty simple, and that is, you know, it's it's great to give out good, you know, it's great when there's good news to share, but when there's bad news, you know, everybody likes to cover that up or they don't like to communicate that. And, you know, as you and I have talked about ad nauseum, you know, having 26 consecutive quarters in a row where you're you're beating or beating analyst estimates or revenue projections is is probably highly unlikely. And so, you know, when I think about this case, I only I can I can only think about a couple things, you know, off to, you know top of mind. One is, you know, where were the you know where where were the controls to make sure that revenue was being recorded correctly? That's the first thing, you know. And, and the second thing is. You know, is it really that bad to miss a quarter um, and, 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 you know, and really tell the investing public and the stakeholders that, you know, the reasons behind it? I, I just it, it's mind numbing to me that everybody thinks that they have to communicate good news all the time. And, and you know, um, the other thing and I, I want to do some other podcasts with you on this because I think it's really fascinating. But there are sort of well, there now in accounting are well-established rules surrounding revenue recognition. And just to show you how dangerous I am, uh, you know, rule 606, and you can explain it, but that was made effective, you've taught me, in 2019. And what kind of impact has that had on uh, you know, how you recognize revenue when you're a distributor or you're selling product or whatever you're getting out there. Because it, to me, it's fascinating. And I would expect we're going to see more cases like this because of that new rule. But what's your thought on that, John? Yeah, I, I mean, revenue recognition and, and all the accounting standards and guidance and everything, is it's been sort of a mishmash up until about a couple of years ago. Um, you know, when they started drafting, you know, ASC 606 to try to simplify the revenue recognition process. Um, and, you know, the, the new standard, it's not easy. And, you know, there's various implementation dates and there's, there's a lot of guidance that are out that, that's out there. And I think people are really still learning this. But, you know, I think what I think what the accounting gods were trying to do is they were trying to create something that was a little bit more cohesive and all comprehensive, you know, and bring all the disparate rules and regulations together or the principles together, if you will, um, into a into a principle that, that made sense for everyone, you know, kind of going forward. And the way I like to explain it is, I'll just give you a very, very simple example. And, and please, there's, there's 
there's probably a million derivations out there when it comes to revenue recognition. And I do encourage everybody out there listening to consult with the professional when you're dealing with these types of issues, because, you know, one little nuance can really flip, you know, flip rev rack in the other direction. But Mike, the, the way I like to explain it is, you know, under the old revenue standards is if you had a three year contract and it was for $6 million and you, it was a million in year one, Two million in year two and three million in year three, you would record it. You know, under most circumstances, you would record a million dollars in year one, two million dollars in year two, and right. three million dollars in year three. Under ASC six hundred six, depending on certain facts and circumstances, you know, you might you might actually have to straight line that revenue. So it'd be two million, two million, two million. Um, and so you know that that's 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 really, you know, some of the things that ASC six hundred six really does get into. But, you know, when it comes to the purpose, you know, it's really to eliminate discrepancies on how business handle accounting in the case of similar transactions across various industries. I think that was sort of the overarching theme here when it comes to ASC 606. But uh, Jonathan, and, and forgive me for my uh, naivete, but isn't it also, I mean, why isn't this something that if the company doesn't implement this appropriately, the CFO or whoever the accounting team is, why don't auditors just catch this all the time and fix it before, you know, you put out, your, and this is in a public company context or even in a private, but why, why don't auditors double check this knowing that it's such a risk and well, make sure I, that calculations are correct. So why are these companies getting into trouble? That's what I don't, I'm sort of asking. Well, again, you could, you know, when when there's collusion, it's pretty difficult to pick up on collusive type of behavior. But I think auditors are doing a, a good job of assessing risk and, you know, identifying areas where they need to look at. And they know, I mean, or they should know that revenue, you know, in most situations is a, is a high risk area. In fact, you know, COSO did a study, uh, their 10 year study on fraud. And I believe 61% of the cases involve revenue recognition. Wow. Now, now, it, more interestingly enough, I remember reading an article last year in CFO Magazine where the SEC actually came out and said that under their whistleblower program, a surprise, not surprisingly enough, that 60% of the cases that were coming in related to revenue recognition. And so I would think that this is, you know, it's, it's more than a shot across the bow. It's sort of, you know, water balloons to the face saying, hey, wake up, you know, when we're looking at or doing an audit, you know, one of the big risk areas we need to focus in on is RevRec. Um, and understanding the business, I think, is, a, is, you know, one of the really critical things here. You know, it's just not, it's not as simple as, as it appears. And there's a lot of nuances when it comes to, you know, um, ASC 606 and, you know, and revenue recognition. There's really a, it really is broken down, Mike, into a five-step process. One is identifying the contract with the customer. And you and I are, are, have dealt with issues like this. You know, identifying those performance obligations. And again, depending on those performance obligations could really, you know, really dictate how this all comes to be. Uh, determining, you know, the transaction price, you know, allocating that particular transaction price and then recognizing revenue when the entity satisfies a performance obligation, right? So right. revenue is recognized when a company actually satisfies a performance obligation by transferring those promised goods or services to a customer, right? So it's not, they, you know, it's not, but Jonathan, it's not then I sign the contract and therefore I'm starting to recognize revenue. I actually have to deliver a service is what you're saying, to deliver products in that process before I can recognize it. 
That's right. And the standard actually goes in to talk about control. And it says, you know, when I, I believe the language is, um, which is when the customer obtains control of that good or service. So, right. exactly. you know, you know, so, you know, that that's really what it's driving at. Right. And, and the interesting, so like uh, years ago, and I wrote about this case, Valiant Pharmaceuticals gets into major trouble on this and ripped its company apart all about revenue recognition. Of course, they had like a sham distributor mm -hmm. you know, that they were using. We saw that case, Mimetics, which occurred last year, or you know, was brought last year in a criminal case involving sophisticated uh, distributor you know, uh, recognition issues. And, um, and now we have Under Armour. And the thing to me is, um, you know, if you know it's your highest risk area, you should have controls in place to protect against something like this. But what I think, what I fear happens, Jonathan, is that there's so much in all of these cases dealt with CEOs or whatever that were addicted to, um, uh, you know, meeting consecutive quarters of revenue projections. And that tells me that if a CEO or your CFO are involved in that, forget it. You're not going to have the controls. That's how these companies get into trouble, right? Well, I think that's one way for sure. I mean, and, and, you know, we talk, you know, it's sort of a, a punchline at, you know, um, the, the, the gatherings that we, we all went to when we talk about tone from the top and, right. you know, really what's being delivered. And, you know, when we look at this, you know, at least from a fraud perspective and we're doing an investigation and, and Mike, you and I have talked about this again, you know, over and over and over again, you know, a lot of this is driven by not only pressure, um, you know, pressure from the top, you know, and, and, you know, like Under Armour, they had pressure to meet, you know, estimates and earnings, but it's also a lot of this is, it goes back to fundamentally incentives, you know, right. It, it, right. you know, exactly. which, which is really a, a true enemy of internal control. And if you don't have properly designed incentives, there's all kinds of wicked behavior that could be, you know, running around in your organization. Well, look, look, Wells Fargo is my sort of poster child for that. And then, but you can also, I can imagine situations where you have incentives, uh, you know, where uh, that sort of fosters misconduct by let's say salespeople or other, other people, even executives who, you know, their compensation is based upon certain uh, revenue targets. So it raises a whole can of worms. And I think that like controls in that area have to be carefully designed and it requires, if you don't get the backing of the CEO and CFO and, you know, all the muckety mucks to put in something that's reasonable or that there are loopholes to it, forget it, right? It's going to happen. Uh, the, and, and what we're seeing now are, are more cases in this area, and, and I, we're going to do some more podcasts on this. But I just feel like, um, you know, like in compliance, we talk about, okay, we know our highest risk, let's say, is third parties. So we put in a program to deal with third parties. Right. From an accounting standpoint, right now, revenue recognition, depending upon your business and business model, is one of your highest fraud risks. So what are you doing about it? That's my question. Well, yeah. it's kind, yeah, it's kind of interesting too. You know, let's let's take this to the boardroom perspective. You know, if you're if you're running around the boardroom today, um, or you're or you haven't you have a seat at the at the table, or you happen to be listening in, I just wonder what they're talking about. 
you know, when it comes to overall risks and risk management of the organization and, and what the board is really focusing in on. You know, when we had, you know, you know, obviously, you know, we're still kind of coming out of the pandemic, but I remember when the pandemic hit, you know, people were talking about, you know, um, reshuffling some of the risks and some of those risks that were sort of latent actually wound up appearing. Like, for example, supply chain risks became a big risk for some, you know, um, you know, uh, resourcing risks became, uh, you know, another risk for others because, you know, they, 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 they weren't getting the resources they needed and either to, you know, manufacture the items or deliver the services. So it's kind of interesting, but, you know, one of the things that, you know, I, I've been talking about, and you know, you and I have had, again, many of conversations about this is, you know, financial reporting and that, you know, the, the incentive to keep, you know, keep that engine moving and maintain, you know, sort of the trends that the company had and like literally prop it up. And again, going back to all of this, I, I would love to hear from folks out there where the board is actually talking about, you know, financial reporting and revenue recognition, or, you know, even the audit committee is talking about financial fraud and revenue recognition as one of the bigger risks, you know, from a board perspective, because I really do believe it is. Well, in that, you know, what I hear so much about and we read so much about is cybersecurity, ransomware, right. all this. And that sort of took the headline, you know, uh, takes the headlines right now. But people still have anti-corruption risks. And if you're a public company, you've got fraud reporting risks, you know, out the wazoo. And what I don't want to see is, you know, sort of some of the trendy topics taking taking over here because, to me, you've got an SEC, it's all lined up. You've got an SEC ready to just enforce and enforce and enforce. You've got financial pressure that was put on people during uh, COVID and we're coming out of that. And you have sort of a, you know, go-go market type of thing going on right now, or, you know, at least until last week. And um, I just see all the incentives or all the sort of factors coming together and I, I can see this increasing uh, as a risk, and 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 I know, and I I want to, and I know I've been we've been just talking about this generally, but we'll get to the under armor facts in a second. But I just sort of feel there needs to be a little bit more of a heightened focus in this area when you're looking across the the, the constellation of risks. I agree. So let's go, we could do the Jonathan and Mike uh, pontificate hour for hours, uh, uh, but let's go to the Under Armour case for the second. And actually, even in my limited experience in this, I'd never heard of this term, Jonathan, and explain it to me, but the Under Armour was cited for its use of pull forward, in quotes, uh, sales, and what what is how does that tie into fraud or how does that tie into your accounting practices in that sense? What are, what does a pull forward mean? So pulling forward means that they had commitments or actually items that were sold or inventory that were sold um, in future quarters that they actually pulled into that current quarter. Um, and you know we've we you know pulling forward is not a new concept. It's been around for a long, long, long time. So. You know, much like, you know, channel stuffing or some of the other revenue right. schemes, you know, pulling forward revenue is is something that, you know, like I said, I, I've been involved in, in many of those cases where an organization will actually pull through revenue to try to meet, you know, uh, you know, quarterly estimate or, or um, you know, or for some other type of reason. So sometimes, 
you know, sometimes, um, you know, when you're actually pulling through revenue and bringing it forward, yeah. the, the bigger thing is at some point it might run out. So, you know, it's kind of like walking, you know, or climbing up a ladder and then you go to reach for that last rung and it's not there. Oh, and then you there. fall down everyone and hit your face all the way down. You know, that's usually what winds up happening in these pull forward cases. So the background is, is that their, their forecasts uh, and they were, you know, whatever it was, 26 or uh, 46 months, whatever it was, or quarters, but they were projected to fall short from their estimates. And then they hit, they hit a couple of glitches in North America. One was it was warmer, okay? And so their winter sales projections for high-priced apparel went down. Right. Uh, and so in, in – but actually what they did, and this is incredible to me, is to – and, like, who knew about this? And you always ask me, well, you always say to me, well, the CEO had to know. The CEO had to know. And Under Armour pulled forward approximately – 408 million in customer mm -hmm. orders. And by the way, some of the ways when you read through this was, I mean, they were they were get, paying people to move it forward. You'd have a contract for like $100 and then they'd say, okay, well, we'll give you a 20% discount if you move, if you, if you take delivery in the fourth quarter as opposed to the first quarter of the next year. So you're losing money in that way but you're also just shuffling the revenue to a different quarter. Yeah, and I think you're also hiding the health of the overall organization. I mean, if it's not there, it's not there. Right, exactly. And that's, that's but 408 million, you're telling me a company, public company like that can move 408 million. We don't know how the case started, mm -hmm. but there has to be numerous people complicit in this process, right? I mean, you know, to get 408 million moved on your books like that? Yeah, one would think, and, you know, I, I think we all know from an investigatory perspective is that, you know, a lot of times, you know, when you have a company, I mean, Under Armour is a nice sized company, but when you have a company that's that, sometimes that big, you know, and people are doing a lot of different things, you know, from accounting to finance to FP&A and all kinds of crazy stuff, some, sometimes you know, people just go about, they're in, they're in the, they're sort of in the engine room and they really don't see the bigger picture. So right. those people may not, not know what's going on, but, you know, occasionally, you know, while you're going through all of this and you're doing an investigation, you have that one person. And I think this is where the whistleblowers are coming from. That's that they're saying, well, this is impossible. This just absolutely can't be, this is just wrong. So, you know, we know that they don't disclose the whistleblowers from an SEC perspective, but, you know, I would imagine that that's really what's going on. So, but there was, you know, and, and if you follow the whole investigation story, there was, I remember it, there was a public disclosure that they made about mm -hmm. uh, sort of their marketing practices and right. you know, they, were, they were partying in Baltimore and using expense accounts and, and all that stuff. And then in the end, that part of the investigation appears to either it wasn't as significant, but during that investigation is where they uncovered this. Now that may have started through a whistleblower. We don't know, uh, you know, in terms of the initial, uh, and it seemed, seemed like Under Armour had a culture of just go, 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 you know, no matter what, you know, they were into their own success in that sense. So uh, the other thing was that it was over six quarters that they did $408 million in pull, pull forwards. 
And I guess when you dis, you know, when you divide that amongst those quarters, maybe it's not as significant and, and as easy to catch. And by the way, uh, you know, uh, that maybe it's harder to detect in that sense. You know, who's your gatekeeper there? If the CFO's involved in it, Jonathan, how are you going to catch it? I mean, it looks like the CFO was involved. Like I said, you know, th that's the other thing. You know, one of the things that I had mentioned before is that, you know, I had mentioned the COSO and the um, SEC article that I had read. Yeah. Um, in that same COSO study, interestingly enough, I, I, I believe that when you go through, um, when, when they went through the accounting and enforcement releases, the, um, the frauds that they came up with, and again, this is 100% of the frauds, 89% of the cases were orchestrated at the CE, CEO or CFO level. Wow. 89% were orchestrated at the CEO or CFO level. Wow. You know, and then the motivations behind that, um, I, I wish I had the study in front of me, but the motivations behind that included, you know, I remember meeting, you know, meeting expectations, right? I mean, these should not be surprising to anybody out there listening, meeting Thank expectations, uh, concealing uh, deteriorating financial condition, um, or preparing for a debt or equity offering. Boy, doesn't that sound familiar? Unbelievable. But, and look, we're dealing with this in the uh, public company context with the SEC. Right. Is something that can occur, uh, you know, and I know there's not the same rigor in terms of regulatory uh, oversight, but uh, can this also be a problem in private companies? Absolutely. Okay. And I mean, they're not, and the 606 is going to still apply to the preparation of financial statements in a public company, a private company, right? Yes. It, it applies through the through the auditor, obviously, or whoever's, and the CFO has to apply those rules. So, well, it's um, management management's responsibility to make sure that the financial statements are prepared in accordance with generally accepted accounting principles. Right. So, now, what's I mean, what is your take on as you see the Under Armour case, and, and I mean, there's one other layer of sort of what was going on here was we also had sort of misleading disclosures being made by senior management about mm -hmm. explanations for their revenue or changes in their revenue or their forecasting going forward. And the SEC, it was not just the false accounting uh, and the revenue recognition issue, but it was also misleading statements that were then made by uh, the company in its, you know, filings and press releases and all that. So does that and is that what we usually, we usually see the two of them together, correct? Those often, people. yes. Yes, yeah. often. Because it's they're, they're driving towards some kind of public goal that they got to meet. And so they're going to end up uh, sort of engaging in misleading representations. So, well, it's, 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 well, let me just give an example here. You know, when you're pulling through revenue and you're doing stuff like that, you know, it's, let, let's take another example. I gave you sort of the one, two, three from an ASC 606 perspective and how that works. Yep. You know, if you're pulling through revenue and, you know, the investors don't know that, you know, one of the things, like if you took a manufacturing company, for example, one of the, or, you know, like a heavy, heavy machinery manufacturing company, right. and you looked at what they did, you know, one of the non-GAAP measures you would look for is uh, backlog. You know, what does their backlog look like, right? right. And right. so... 
you know, again, if, if, if you're failing, if you're playing games with that or you're failing to disclose, you know, how that all comes together, that could be problematic. And so, you know, I think from a, you know, from an, I think you can learn sometimes more about a company by reading the disclosures than actually looking at the numbers and the financial statements. Oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. So before we go, one last question there, just perspective from you, Jonathan. Do you see the uh, do you see this as a growing risk area for public companies in this current administration? And do you think we're going to see more of these types of cases? Well, I mean, if you look at Gensler's history, I mean, he's definitely a regulatory type individual. And, you know, we all know that there's been a lot of regulatory, let's just say, um, guidance that has come out over the past couple of years. I believe that based on what happened over the last 16 or 17 months with the pandemic, and um, you know some other factors. I think we're in a target-rich environment right now for, you know, companies playing games with revenue recognition. And so, you know, I, I anticipate we're going to see a lot more of these cases. And especially now, since I believe the SEC has implemented their their you know their program with regards to sort of data mining, data analytics. You know, you know, I'm not so I'm not so sure how theirs works, but I would imagine that there would be outliers out there that they're looking at, and they're probably investigating a lot of companies today that, and those companies probably don't even know that they're on their that they're on the SEC's radar. Yeah, I I mean I see this as a fertile area. I think that uh, one thing Gensler, I mean I know he's got a lot of priorities that are sort of beyond the sort of traditional core areas but i the sense i get from talking to some of the lawyers there is that they're excited to bring more cases i mean they're just excited about that and the in the enforcement arena and they're getting the support from sort of the top level management uh to do that so i think sort of the traditional accounting fraud areas uh you're i also think that we went through a rough time with pan, the pandemic that you know that's when people feel the pressure even more so uh, you know, to me, if you have a company that says, hey, we went through, you know, COVID and uh, everybody thought our business went down, but actually we did great and grew, that to me is a red flag. I mean, it just is. It, you, there's got to be accurate accounting here and you've got to, uh, and people have got to stay true to what, what really is going on. But I know I'm preaching to the choir here, so. But anyways, thanks, Jonathan. Good discussion as always. Um, we'll be back with some more on this because I sent you a list of cases that I want to get your reaction to uh, and discuss. But uh, if people want to reach you and they have questions about uh, revenue recognition, accounting fraud, how you build controls around this, or if they've got an issue uh, that they want you to take a look at, how do people, how do people reach you? Well, they can they can reach out to me at jonathan.marks at bakertilly.com and you know we have a we have a, a quality team of professionals at Baker Tilly and so you know happy to help anyone out there that might have a question. And I'll I'll vouch for Jonathan. I've I've worked with his team and they're just uh, an amazing group. And uh, you know congratulations to you for putting together uh, such a group. But anyways, uh, team effort, Mike. Team effort. Team, it's always a team effort. That's true. Thanks, Jonathan. Always good to talk to you. And, you too. Uh, hey, happy Father's Day tomorrow. And you as well. All right. That's good. Thanks again for listening to Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Please subscribe to the podcast series. The Volkov Law Group believes that every company should have a robust ethics and compliance program. 
Experience and research show that ethical companies are better performers in the global marketplace. You can learn more about the legal and compliance services we offer at our website, www.volkovlaw.com. You can also follow our award-winning blog, Corruption, Crime, and Compliance, and our podcast series. You can contact Michael Volkov at his email address, mvolkov at volkovlaw.com.